Book Third of The Joyful Wisdom, Part One. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Joyful Wisdom by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by Thomas Common. Book Third. 108. New Struggles. After Buddha was dead, people showed his shadow for centuries afterwards in a cave. An immense, frightful shadow. God is dead. But, as the human race is constituted, there will perhaps be caves for millenniums yet, in which people will show his shadow, and we, we still have to overcome his shadow. 109. Let us be on our guard. Let us be on our guard against thinking that the world is a living being. Where could it extend itself? What could it nourish itself with? How could it grow and increase? We know tolerably well what the organic is, and we are to reinterpret the emphatically derivative, tardy, rare and accidental, which we only perceive on the crust of the earth, into the essential, universal and eternal, as those do who call the universe an organism? That disgusts me. Let us now be on our guard against believing that the universe is a machine. It is assuredly not constructed with a view to one end. We invest it with far too high an honour with the word, quote, machine, unquote. Let us be on our guard against supposing that anything so methodical as the cyclic motions of our neighbouring stars obtains generally and throughout the universe. Indeed, a glance at the Milky Way induces doubt as to whether there are not many cruder and more contradictory motions there, and even stars with continuous rectilinearly gravitating orbits and the like the astral arrangement in which we live is an exception. This arrangement, and the relatively long durability which is determined by it, has again made possible the exception of exceptions, the formation of organic life. The general character of the world, on the other hand, is to all eternity chaos, not by the absence of necessity, but in the sense of the absence of order, structure, form, beauty, wisdom, and whatever else our ascetic humanities are called. Judged by our reason, the unlucky castes are far oftenest to the rule. The exceptions are not the secret purpose. The whole musical box repeats eternally its air, which can never be called a melody. And finally, the very expression, quote, unlucky cast, unquote, is already an anthropomorphizing which involves blame. But how could we presume to blame or praise the universe? Let us be on our guard against ascribing to it heartlessness, or unreason, or their opposites. It is neither perfect, nor beautiful, nor noble, nor does it seek to be anything of the kind. It does not at all attempt to imitate man. It is altogether unaffected by our aesthetic and moral judgments. Neither has it any self-preservative instinct, nor instinct 
at all. It also knows no law. Let us be on our guard against saying that there are laws in nature. There are only necessities. There is no one who commands, no one who obeys, no one who transgresses. When you know that there is no design, you know also that there is no chance, for it is only where there is a world of design that the word, quote, chance, unquote, has meaning. Let us be on our guard against saying that death is contrary to life. The living being is only a species of dead being, and a very rare species. Let us be on our guard against thinking that the world eternally creates the new. There is no eternally enduring substances. Matter is just another error as the god of the Eleatics. But when shall we be at the end with our foresight and precaution? When will all these shadows of God cease to obscure us? When shall we have nature entirely undeified? When shall we be permitted to naturalize ourselves by means of the pure, newly discovered, newly redeemed nature? One hundred and ten. Origin of Knowledge Throughout immense stretches of time, the intellect has produced nothing but errors. Some of them prove to be useful and preservative of the species. He who fell in with them, or inherited them, waged the battle for himself and his offspring with better success. Those erroneous articles of faith, which were successively transmitted by inheritance, and have finally become almost the property and stock of the human species, are, for example, the following. That there are enduring things. That there are equal things. That there are things, substances and bodies. That a thing is what it appears. That our will is free that what is good for me is also good absolutely. It was only very late that the deniers and doubters of such propositions came forward. It was only very late that truth made its appearance as the most impotent form of knowledge. It seemed as if it were impossible to get along with truth. Our organism was adapted for the very opposite. All its higher functions, the perceptions of the senses, and in general every kind of sensation, cooperated with those primevally embodied fundamental errors. Moreover, those propositions became the very standards of knowledge, according to which the quote, true unquote, and the quote, false unquote, were determined. Throughout the whole domain of pure logic, the strength of conceptions does not, therefore, depend on their degree of truth, but on their antiquity, their embodiment, their character as conditions of life. Where life and knowledge seemed to conflict, there has never been serious contention. Denial and doubt have there been regarded as madness. The exceptional thinkers, like the Eleatics, who in spite of this advanced and maintained the antithesis of the natural errors, believed that it is possible also to live these counterparts. 
It was they who devised the sage as the man of immutability, impersonality, and universality of intuition, as one and all at the same time, with a special faculty for that reverse kind of knowledge. They were of the belief that their knowledge was at the same time the principle of life. To be able to affirm all of this, however, they had to deceive themselves concerning their own condition. They had to attribute to themselves impersonality and unchanging permanence. They had to mistake the nature of the philosophical individual, deny the force of the impulses in cognition, and conceive of reason generally as entirely free and self-originating activity. They kept their eyes shut to the fact that they also had reached their doctrines in contradiction to valid methods, or throughout their longing for repose, or for exclusive possession, or for domination. The subtler development of sincerity and of scepticism finally made these men impossible. Their life also and their judgments turned out to be dependent on the primeval impulses and fundamental errors of all sentient being. Their subtler sincerity and scepticism arose wherever two antithetical maxims appeared to be applicable to life because both of them were compatible with the fundamental errors where therefore there could be contention concerning a higher or lower degree of utility for life and likewise where new maxims proved to be not in fact useful but at the least not injurious as expressions for an intellectual impulse to play a game that was like all games innocent and happy the human brain was gradually filled with such judgments and convictions. And in this tangled screen there arose ferment, strife, and lust for power. Not only utility and delight, but every kind of impulse took part in the struggle for, quote, truths, unquote. The intellectual struggle became a business, an attraction, a calling, a duty, an honor cognizing and striving for the true finally arranged themselves as needs among other needs from that moment not only belief and conviction but also examination denial distrust and contradiction became forces all quote, evil unquote, instincts were subordinated to knowledge were placed in its service and acquired the prestige of the permitted the honoured, the useful, and finally the appearance and innocence of the good. Knowledge thus became a portion of life itself, and as life it became a continually growing power, until finally the cognitions and those primeval fundamental errors clashed with each other, both as life, both as power, both in the same man. The thinker is now the being in whom the impulse to truth and those life-preserving errors wage their first conflict. Now that the impulse to truth has also proved itself to be a life-preserving power. In comparison with the importance of this conflict, everything else is indifferent. The final question concerning the conditions of life is here raised. 
and the first attempt is here made to answer it by experiment. How far is truth susceptible of embodiment? That is the question. That is the experiment. One hundred and eleven. Origin of the logical. Where has logic originated in men's heads? Undoubtedly out of the illogical, the domain of which must originally have been immense. But numberless beings who reasoned otherwise than we do at present perished, albeit that they may have come nearer to the truth than we. Whoever, for example, could not discern the quote, like unquote, often enough with regard to food and with regard to animals dangerous to him, whoever therefore deduced too slowly or was too circumspect in his deductions had smaller probability of survival than he who in all similar things immediately divined the equality. The prepondering inclination, however, to deal with the similar as equal, an illogical inclination, for there is nothing equal in itself, first created the whole basis of logic. It was just so, paren, in order that the conception of substance might originate, this being indispensable to logic, although in the strictest sense nothing actually corresponds to it, end paren that for a long period the changing process in things had to be overlooked and remained unperceived. The beings not seeing correctly had the advantage over those who saw everything, quote, in flux, unquote. In itself, every high degree of circumspection in conclusions, every sceptical inclination is a great danger to life. No living being would have been preserved unless the contrary inclination, to affirm rather than suspend judgment, to mistake and fabricate rather than wait, to assent rather than deny, to decide rather than be in the right, had been cultivated with extraordinary assiduity. The course of logical thought and reasoning in our modern brains corresponds to a process and struggles of impulses in which singly and in themselves are all very illogical and unjust. We experience usually only the result of the struggle. So rapidly and secretly does this primitive mechanism now operate in us. 112 Cause and effect. We say it is quote, explanation, unquote, but it is only in quote, description unquote, that we are in advance of the older stages of knowledge and science. We describe better, we explain just as little as our predecessors. We have discovered a manifold succession where the naive man and investigator of older cultures saw only two things, quote, cause, unquote, and, quote, effect, unquote. as it was said. We have perfected the conception of becoming, but have not got a knowledge about what is above and behind the conception. The series of, quote, causes, 
unquote, stands before us much more complete in every case. We conclude that this and that must first proceed in order that the other may follow, but we have not grasped anything thereby. The peculiarity, for example, in every chemical process seems a, quote, miracle, unquote, the same as before, just like all locomotion. Nobody has, quote, explained, unquote, impulse. How could we ever explain? We operate only with things which do not exist, with lines, surfaces, bodies, atoms, divisible times, divisible spaces. How can explanation be possible when we first make everything a conception, our conception? It is sufficient to regard science as the exactest humanizing of things that is possible. We always learn to describe ourselves more accurately by describing things and their successions. Cause and effect. There is probably never any such duality. In fact, there is a continuum before us, from which we isolate a few portions. Just as we always observe emotion as isolated points, and therefore do not properly see it, but infer it, the abruptness with which many effects take place leads us into error. It is, however, only an abruptness for us. There is an infinite multitude of processes in that abrupt moment which escape us. An intellect which could see cause and effect as a continuum, which could see the flux of events not according to our mode of perception, as things arbitrarily separated and broken, would throw aside the conception of cause and effect, and would deny all conditionality. One one three, the theory of poisons. So many things have to be united in order that scientific thinking may arise, and all the necessary powers must be devised, exercised, and fostered singly. In their isolation, however, they have very often had quite a different effect than at present. When they are confined within the limits of scientific thinking and kept mutually in check, they have operated as poisons, for example, the doubting impulse, the denying impulse, the waiting impulse, the collecting impulse, the disintegrating impulse. Many hecatombs of men were sacrificed ere these impulses learned to understand their juxtaposition and regard themselves as functions of one organizing force in one man. And how far are we still from the point at which the artistic powers and the practical wisdom of life shall cooperate with scientific thinking, so that a higher organic system may be formed in relation to which the scholar, the physician, the artist and the lawgiver as we know them at present will seem sorry antiquities? 114. The Extent of the Moral we construct a new picture, which we see immediately with the aid of all the old experiences which we have had, always according to the degree of our honesty and justice. The only events are moral events, even in the domain of sense perception. 115. 
The Four Errors Man has been reared by his errors. Firstly, he saw himself always imperfect. Secondly, he attributed to himself imaginary qualities. Thirdly, he felt himself in a false position in relation to the animals and nature. Fourthly, he always devised new tables of values and accepted them for a time as eternal and unconditional, so that at one time this and another time that human impulse or state stood first and was ennobled in consequence. When one has deduced the effect of these four errors, one has also deduced humanity, humaneness, and, quote, human dignity, unquote. 116. Herd Instinct Wherever we meet with a morality, we find a valuation and order of rank of the human impulses and activities. These valuations and orders of rank are always the expression of the needs of a community or herd, that which is in the first place to its advantage, and in the second place and third place, is also the authoritative standard for the worth of every individual. By morality the individual is taught to become a function of the herd, and to ascribe to himself value only as a function as the conditions for the maintenance of one community have been very different from those of another community, there have been very different moralities, and in respect to the future essential transformations of herds and communities, states and societies, one can prophesy that there will still be very divergent moralities. Morality is the herd instinct of the individual. 117. The Herd's Sting of Conscience In the longest and remotest ages of the human race, there were quite a different sting of conscience from that of the present day. At present, one feels only responsible for what one intends and for what one does, and we have our pride in ourselves. All our professors of jurisprudence start with this sentiment of individual independence and pleasure, as if the source of right had taken its rise here from the beginning. But throughout the longest period in the life of mankind, there was nothing more terrible to a person than to feel himself independent. To be alone, to feel independent, neither to obey nor to rule, to represent an individual, that was no pleasure to a person then, but a punishment. He was condemned, quote, to be an individual, unquote. Freedom of thought was regarded as discomfort personified. While we feel law and regulation as constraint and loss, people formerly regarded egotism as a painful thing and a veritable evil. For a person to be himself, to value himself according to his own measure and weight, that was then quite distasteful. An inclination to such a thing would have been regarded as madness, for all miseries and terrors were associated with being alone, 
At that time the quote, free will unquote, had bad conscience in close proximity to it, and the less independently a person acted, the more the herd instinct, and not his personal character, expressed itself in this conduct. So much the more moral did he esteem himself. All that did injury to the herd, whether the individual had intended it or not, then caused him a sting of conscience, and his neighbour likewise, indeed the whole herd. It is in this respect that we have most changed our mode of thinking. 118. Benevolence Is it virtuous when a cell transforms itself into the function of a stronger cell? It must do so. And is it wicked when the stronger one assimilates the other? It must do so likewise. It is necessary, for it has to have abundant indemnity and seeks to regenerate itself. One has therefore to distinguish the instinct of appropriation and the instinct of submission in benevolence, accordingly as the stronger or the weaker feels benevolent. Gladness and covetousness are united in the stronger person, who wants to transform something into his function. Gladness and desire to be coveted in the weaker person, who would like to become a function. The former case is essentially pity, a pleasant excitation of the instinct of appropriation at the sight of the weak. It is to be remembered, however, that quote, strong unquote, and quote, weak unquote, are relative conceptions. 119. No altruism! I see in many men an excessive impulse and delight in wanting to be a function. They strive after it, and have the keenest sense for all those positions in which precisely they themselves can be functions. Among such persons are those women who transform themselves into just that function of a man that is but weakly developed in him, and then become his purse, or his politics, or his social intercourse. Such beings maintain themselves best when they insert themselves in an alien organism. If they do not succeed, they become vexed, irritated, and eat themselves up. 120. Health of the Soul The favourite medico-moral formula, paren, whose originator was Ariston of Kynos, end paren, Virtue is the health of the soul, would, at least in order to be used, have to be altered to this. Thy virtue is the health of thy soul, for there is no such thing as health in itself, and all attempts to define a thing in that way have lamentably failed. It is necessary to know thy aim, thy horizons, thy powers, thy impulses, thy errors, and especially the ideals and fantasies of thy soul, in order to determine what health implies even for thy body. There are consequently innumerable kinds of physical health, and the more one again permits the unique and unparalleled to raise its head, the more one unlearns the dogma of the quote, equality of men, unquote, so much the more also must the conception of a normal health, together with a normal diet, 
and a normal course of disease be abrogated by our physicians, and then only would it be time to turn our thoughts to the health and disease of the soul, and make the special virtue of everyone consist in its health, but, to be sure, what appeared as health in one person might appear as contrary to the health in another. In the end, the great question might still remain open, whether we could do without sickness, even for the development of our virtue, and whether our thirst for knowledge and self-knowledge would not especially need the sickly soul as well as the sound one. In short, whether the mere will to health is not a prejudice, a cowardice, and perhaps an instance of the subtlest barbarism and unprogressiveness? One hundred and twenty-one. Life no argument. We have arranged for ourselves a world in which we can live, by the postulating of bodies, lines, surfaces, causes and effects, motion and rest, form and content. Without these articles of faith, no one could manage to live at present. But for all that they are still unproved, life is no argument, error might be among the conditions of life. One, two, two. The element of moral scepticism in Christianity. Christianity also has made a great contribution to enlightenment and has taught moral scepticism in a very impressive and effective manner, accusing and embittered, but with untiring patience and subtlety. It annihilated in every individual the belief in his virtues. It made the great virtuous ones, of whom antiquity had no lack, vanish for ever from the earth. Those popular men, who, in the belief of their perfection, walked about with the dignity of a hero of the bullfight, when, trained in this Christian school of scepticism, we now read the moral books of the ancients, for example those of Seneca and Epictetus, we feel a pleasurable superiority, and are full of secret insight and penetration. It seems to us as if a child talked before an old man, or a pretty gushing girl before La Rochefoucauld. We know better what virtue is. After all, however, we have applied the same scepticism to all religious states and processes, such as sin, repentance, grace, sanctification, etc., and have allowed the worm to burrow so well that we have now the same feeling of subtle superiority and insight even in reading all Christian books. We also know the religious feelings better. And it is time to know them well and describe them well, for the pious ones of the old belief die out also. Let us save their likeness and type, at least for the sake of knowledge. 1, 2, 3. Knowledge more than a means. Also, without this passion, I refer to the passion for knowledge, science would be furthered. Science has hitherto increased and grown up without it. The good faith in science, the prejudice in its favour, 
by which states are at present dominated, paren, it was even the church formerly, end paren, rests fundamentally on the fact that the absolute inclination and impulse has so rarely revealed itself in it, and that science is regarded not as a passion, but as a condition and an quote, ethos. Unquote. Indeed, amor placier of knowledge, paren, curiosity, end paren, often enough suffices, amor vanity suffices, and habituation to it, with the afterthought of obtaining honour and bread. It even suffices for many that they do not know what to do with a surplus of leisure, except to continue reading, collecting, arranging, observing and narrating their quote, scientific impulse, unquote, is their ennui. Pope Louis X once, paren, in the brief to Beroeldus, in paren, sang the praise of science. He designated it as the finest ornament and the greatest pride of our life, a noble employment in happiness and in misfortune. Without it, he says, finally, all human undertakings would be without a firm basis. Even with it, they are still sufficiently mutable and insecure. But this rather sceptical pope, like all other ecclesiastical panegyrists of science, suppressed his ultimate judgment concerning it. If one may deduce from his words what is remarkable enough for such a lover of art that he places science above art, it is after all, however, only from politeness that he omits to speak of that which he places high above all science, the, quote, revealed truth, unquote, and the, quote, eternal salvation of the soul, unquote. What are ornaments, pride, entertainment, and security of life to him in comparison thereto? Quote, science is something of secondary rank, nothing ultimate or unconditional, no object of passion. End quote. This judgment was kept back in Leo's soul, the truly Christian judgment concerning science. In antiquity, its dignity and appreciation were lessened by the fact that, even among its most eager disciples, the striving after virtue stood foremost, and that people thought they had given the highest praise to knowledge when they celebrated it as the best means to virtue. It is something new in history that knowledge claims to be more than a means. One, two, four. In the horizon of the infinite, we have left the land and have gone aboard ship. We have broken down the bridge behind us, nay more, the land behind us. Well, little ship, Look out! Besides thee is the ocean. It is true it does not always roar, and sometimes it spreads out like silk and gold, and a gentle reverie. But times will come when thou wilt feel that it is infinite, and that there is nothing more frightful than infinity. Oh! The poor bird that felt itself free, and now strikes against the walls of this cage. Alas, if homesickness for the land should attack thee, as if there had been more freedom there. 
and there is no quote, land unquote, any longer. 125. The Madman Have you ever heard of the madman who on a bright morning lighted a lantern and ran into the marketplace calling out unceasingly, I seek God! I seek God! As there were many people standing about who did not believe in God, he caused a great deal of amusement. Why? Is he lost? said one. Has he strayed away like a child? said another. Or does he keep himself hidden? Is he afraid of us? Has he taken a sea voyage? Has he emigrated? The people cried out laughingly, all in a hubbub. The insane man jumped into their midst and transfixed them with his glances. Where has God gone? he called out. I mean to tell you, we have killed him, you and I. We are all his murderers. But how have we done it? How are we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the whole horizon? What did we do when we loosened this earth from its sun? Whither does it now move? Whither do we move? Away from all suns? Do we not dash on unceasingly? Backwards, sideways, forwards, in all directions? Is there still an above and below? Do we not stray as through an infinite nothingness? Does not empty space breathe upon us? Has it not become colder? Does not night come on continually, darker and darker? Shall we not have to light lanterns in the morning? Do we not hear the noise of the gravediggers who are burying God? Do we not smell the divine putrefaction, for even gods putrefy? God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we console ourselves? The most murderous of all murderers, the holiest and the mightiest that the world has hitherto possessed, has bled to death under our knife. Who will wipe the blood from us? With what water shall we cleanse ourselves? What lustrums, what sacred games shall we have to devise? Is not the magnitude of this deed too great for us? Shall we not ourselves have to become gods merely to seem worthy of it? There never was a greater event. On account of it, all who are born after us belong to a higher history than any history hitherto. Here the madman was silent, and looked again at his hearers. They were also silent, and looked at him in surprise. At last he threw down his lantern on the ground, so it broke in pieces and was extinguished. I come too early, he then said. I am not yet at the right time. This prodigious event is still on its way, and is travelling. It has not yet reached men's ears. Lightning and thunder need time. The light of the stars needs time. Deeds need time. Even after they are done, to be seen and heard, this deed is as yet further from them than the furthest stars. And yet they have done it! 
It is further stated that the madman made his way into different churches on the same day, and there intoned his requiem atrianum dio. When led out and called to account, he always gave the reply, What are these churches now, if they are not the tombs and monuments of God? One two six, Mystical Explanations Mystical explanations are regarded as profound. The truth is, they do not even go to the length of being superficial. 127. After-effect of the most ancient religiousness. The thoughtless man thinks that the will is the only thing that operates, that willing is something simple, manifestly given, underived and comprehensible in itself. He is convinced that when he does anything, for example, when he delivers a blow, it is he who strikes, and he has struck because he willed to strike. He does not notice anything of a problem therein, but the feeling of willing suffices to him, not only for the acceptance of cause and effect, but also for the belief that he understands their relationship. Of the mechanism of the occurrence, and of the manifold subtle operations that must be performed in order that the blow may result, and likewise of the incapacity of the will in itself to affect even the smallest part of those operations, he knows nothing. The will is to him a magically operating force, the belief in the will, as the cause of effects, is the belief in magically operating forces. In fact, whenever he saw anything happen, man originally believed in a will as cause, and in personally willing beings operating in the background. The conception of mechanism was very remote from him. Because, however, man for immense periods of time believed only in persons, and not in matter, forces, things, etc. The belief in cause and effect has become a fundamental belief with him, which he applies everywhere, when anything happens, and even still uses instinctively as a piece of atavism of remotest origin. The propositions, quote, no effect without a cause, unquote, and, quote, every effect again implies a cause, unquote, appear as generalization of several less general propositions. Quote, Where there is operation, there has been willing, unquote. Quote, Operating is only possible on willing beings, unquote. Quote, there is never a pure, resultless experience of activity, but every experience involves stimulation of the will, unquote. Paren, to activity, defence, revenge, or retaliation. End paren. But in the primitive period of the human race, the latter and the former propositions were identical. The first were not generalizations of the second, but the second were explanations of the first. Schopenhauer, with his assumption that all that exists is something volitional, has set a primitive mythology on the throne. He seems never to have attempted an analysis of the will, because he believed, like everybody, in the simplicity, the immediateness of all volition. 
while volition is in fact such a cleverly practised mechanical process that it almost escapes the observing eye i set the following propositions against those of schopenhauer firstly in order that a will may arise an idea of pleasure and pain is necessary secondly that a vigorous excitation may be felt as pleasure or pain is the affair of the interpreting intellect which to be sure operates thereby for the most part unconsciously to us and one and the same excitation may be interpreted as pleasure or pain thirdly it is only in an intellectual being that there is pleasure displeasure and will the immense majority of organisms have nothing of the kind one two eight the value of prayer prayer has been devised for such men as have never any thoughts of their own and to whom an elevation of the soul is unknown or passes unnoticed what shall these people do in holy places and in all important situations in life which require repose and some kind of dignity in order at least that they may not disturb the wisdom of all the founders of religions the small as well as the great has commended to them the formula of prayer as a long mechanical labour of the lips united with an effort of the memory and with a uniform prescribed attitude of hands and feet and eyes they may then like the tibetans chew the cud of their quote, om mane padem hum unquote, innumerable times or as in benares count the name of the god ram 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 paren and so on with or without grace end paren on their fingers or on a Vishnu with his thousand names of invocation, Allah with his ninety-nine, or they may make use of the prayer-wheels and the rosary. The main thing is that they are settled down for a time at this work, and present a tolerable appearance. Their mode of prayer is devised for the advantage of the pious, who have thought an elevation of their own but even these have their weary hours when a series of venerable words and sounds and a mechanical pious ritual does them good but supposing that these rare men in every religion the religious man is an exception know how to help themselves the poor in spirit do not know and to forbid them the prayer babbling would mean to take their religion from them a fact which protestantism brings more and more to light all that religion wants with such persons is that they should keep still with their eyes hands legs and their organs they thereby become temporarily beautified and more human-looking one two nine the conditions for god God himself cannot subsist without wise men, said Luther, and with good reason, but God can still less subsist without unwise men. Good Luther did not say that. 130. The Dangerous Resolution The Christian resolution to find the world ugly and bad has made the world ugly and bad.
131. Christianity and Suicide Christianity made use of the excessive longing for suicide at the time of its origin as a lever for its power. It left only two forms of suicide, invested them with the highest dignity and the highest hopes, and forbade all others in a dreadful manner. But martyrdom and the slow self-annihilation of the ascetic were permitted. 132. Against Christianity It is now no longer our reason, but our taste that decides against Christianity. 133. Axioms An unavoidable hypothesis on which mankind must always fall back again, is in the long run more powerful than the most firmly believed belief in something untrue, paren, like the Christian belief, end paren. In the long run, that means a hundred thousand years from now. 134. Pessimists as Victims When a profound dislike of existence gets the upper hand, the after-effect of a great error in diet of which a people has been long guilty comes to light. The spread of Buddhism, paren, not its origin, end paren, is thus to a considerable extent dependent on the excessive an almost exclusive rice fair of the Indians, and on the universal enveration that results therefrom. Perhaps the modern European discontentedness is to be looked upon as caused by the fact that the world of our forefathers, the whole Middle Ages, was given to drink owing to the influence of German tastes in Europe. The Middle Ages that means the alcoholic poisoning of Europe. The German dislike of life, paren, including influence of the cellar air and stove poison in German dwellings, and paren, is essentially a cold weather complaint. 135. Origin of Sin Sin, as it is at present felt wherever Christianity prevails, or has prevailed, is a Jewish feeling and a Jewish invention, and in respect to this background all the Christian morality, Christianity has in fact aimed at quote, Judaizing unquote, the whole world. To what an extent this has succeeded in Europe is traced most accurately in the extent of our alienness to Greek antiquity, a world without the feeling of sin. In our sentiments even at present, in spite of all the good will to approximation and assimilation, which whole generations and many distinguished individuals have not failed to display, quote, only when thou repentest is God gracious to thee, end quote, that would have aroused the laughter or the wrath of a Greek. He would say, quote, slaves may have such sentiments, end quote. Here a mighty being, an almighty being, and yet a revengeful being, is presupposed. His power is so great that no injury whatever could be done to him, except in the point of honour. Every sin is an infringement of respect, a crimen laissez, 
majestisis divinae, and nothing more. Contrition, degradation, rolling in the dust, these are the first and last conditions on which his favour depends, the restoration, therefore, of his divine honour. If injury be caused otherwise by sin, if a profound spreading evil be propagated by it, an evil which, like a disease, attacks and strangles one man after another, that does not trouble this honour-craving oriental in heaven. Sin is an offence against him, not against mankind. To him on whom he has bestowed his favour, he bestows also this indifference to the natural consequences of sin. God and mankind are here thought of as separated, as so antithetical that sin against the latter cannot be at all possible. All deeds are to be looked upon solely with respect to their supernatural consequences, and not with respect to their natural results. It is thus that the Jewish feeling, to which all that is natural seems unworthy in itself, would have things. The Greeks, on the other hand, were more familiar with the thought that transgression also may have dignity, even theft, as in the case of Prometheus, even the slaughter of cattle, as the expression of frantic jealousy, as in the case of Ajax. In their need to attribute dignity to transgression, and embody it therein, they invented tragedy, an art and a delight, which in its profoundest essence has remained alien to the Jew, in spite of all his poetic endowment and taste for the sublime. 136. The Chosen People the Jews, who regarded themselves as the chosen people among nations, and that too because they are the moral geniuses among the nations, paren, in virtue of their capacity for despising the human in themselves more than any other people, end paren. The Jews have a pleasure in their divine monarch and saint similar to that which the French nobility had in Louis the Fourteenth. This nobility had allowed its power and autocracy to be taken from it, and had become contemptible. In order not to feel this, in order to be able to forget it, an unequalled royal magnificence, a royal authority and plentitude of power was needed, to which there was only access for the nobility. In accordance with this privilege, they raised themselves to the elevation of the court, and from that elevation they saw everything under them, saw everything contemptible. They got beyond all uneasiness of conscience. They thus elevated intentionally the tower of the royal power more and more into the clouds, and set the final coping stone of their own power thereon. 137. Spoken in Parable A Jesus Christ is only possible in a Jewish landscape. I mean in one over which the gloomy and sublime thundercloud of the angry Jehovah hung continually. 
Here only was the rare, sudden flashing of a single sunbeam through the dreadful, universal and continuous nocturnal day regarded as a miracle of, quote, love, unquote, as a beam of the most unmerited, quote, grace, unquote. Here only could Christ dream of his rainbow and celestial ladder on which God descended to man. Everywhere else the clear weather and the sun were considered the rule and the commonplace. 138. The Error of Christ The founder of Christianity thought there was nothing from which men suffered so much as from their sins. It was his error, the error of him who felt himself without sin, to whom experience was lacking in this respect. It was thus that his soul filled with that marvellous, fantastic pity which had reference to a trouble that even among his own people, the inventors of sin, was rarely a great trouble. But Christians understood subsequently how to do justice to their master, and how to sanctify his error into, quote, truth, unquote. 139. Colour of the Passions Natures such as the Apostle Paul have an evil eye for the passions. They learnt to know only the filthy, the distorting and the heartbreaking in them. Their ideal aim, therefore, is the annihilation of the passions. In the divine they see complete purification from passion. The Greeks, quite otherwise than Paul and the Jews, directed their ideal aim precisely to the passions, and loved, elevated, embellished, and deified them. In passion they evidently not only felt themselves happier, but also purer and diviner than otherwise. And now the Christians? Have they wished to become Jews in this respect? Have they perhaps become Jews? 140. Too Jewish. If God wanted to become an object of love, he would first of all have to forego judging and justice. A judge, and even a gracious judge, is no object of love. The founder of Christianity showed too little of the finer feelings in this respect, being a Jew. End of Book Third, Part One